0: To the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast and today on the show I am joined by Alex O'Connor, otherwise known as Cosmic Skeptic. Alex is a YouTuber who covers topics such as morality, religion and a lot more and does so in an extremely interesting way. And you come away from his videos with a lot to think about every time I watch one I have to have a sit down and contemplate my life. So I wanted to get Alex on the show. And we talked through topics such as morality, what it means to be good and bad. Am I a bad person because I rejected a charity appeal on the street and then bought an expensive coffee two minutes later? We cover these topics and a lot more during our conversation and is one that I very, very much enjoyed. After I recorded this interview, I had to have a sit down for an hour or two and just replay these conversations in my head and really have a think about the topics we discuss. I hope it evokes the same in you and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Alex, otherwise known as Cosmic Sceptic. Alex, welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast, my friend. Thanks for having me on, it's good to be here. So there's a lot of, of big topics we've been Ask to speak to you about so I, I think I'm gonna jump in with the most important topic straight away. Okay, what is the best Beatles song of all time? Because for me, it's probably across the universe or Helter Skelter, but I'd like your opinion.
1: I am I okay, am I allowed to kind of cheat here and say that it's uh Till There Was You, which yeah. is off the second album, which is technically a cover, they didn't write it, but yeah, that song for, for the for the amount of time that I thought it was an original Beatles song. Was my favorite Beatles song. Turns out it's not. Um, I actually, maybe controversially, think that With the Beatles might be the best Beatles album that exists. Which mm-hmm. is probably like one of the worst things I could say publicly. Um, I don't know what it is about that album, man. I love the kind of old school style of it. Um, it hasn't. It, it's not kind of got the cheesy cliche feel of the first album, but it's still got that old school feel. I just, I just adore it. Um, but yeah, I think I'd think I'd go with that.
0: There we are. Might be the most controversial opinion of the conversation that we're about to have.
1: I certainly Um, hope not. I certainly hope not. Otherwise, (laughs) wasting my time a little bit. I'd like to make sure some eyebrows are raised at some point in any conversation. And I suppose that's a good way to to kick things off in the right spirit. Yeah, so let's jump from one controversial
0: thing to another. Um, We mentioned it before we went on air. Whenever I mention a a guy like yourself is coming on, we get a lot of questions come in. A lot of people want to hear about cancer culture at the moment. Um, you know, I've spoken to Brett about it, I've spoken to Dave, Douglas, and you, and now yourself. So I guess the, 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 the yeah. place to start is, where do you think that the the main motive lies behind these people that just want to see people get cancelled? Where, where do you think it stems from?
1: I think it stems in many cases from a very sincere care about um, the, the the kind of danger and the harm that can be brought about by misleading information and offensive material, and I mean stuff that's truly genuinely offensive. Um, People, although it's kind of been co-opted into this huge uh, monster that can't be controlled, I think that there is at least some element, I mean we can understand why people are doing it, right, we can understand why people don't want these things on the scene and, and we all have certain things that we know should be restricted or not allowed or perhaps kind of ruin someone's character to a certain extent. The problem is that kind of cancel culture has become this actual, like, thing, right? It's not just this, this, this strange trend that people are kind of identifying. Cancel culture is this, like, thing that people talk about. It's like a it's like an object of discussion now. And what that means is you have people outwardly saying that they support cancel culture. It's like, I'm in favor of this kind of approach to, to conversation. My problem with this is that people need to specify exactly what they mean, right? I did a debate for the Oxford Union fairly recently and they take ages to upload the debate so I have absolutely no idea when it's going to be on YouTube um, but we were, we were debating this topic and I was the last speaker on the, on the proposition side, the proposition that we should cancel cancel culture and I was listening to the whole debate because I was the last one to speak and everybody who was defending cancel culture started by that they, they kept saying things like we, just, we, we need to make sure people are held accountable. You know, we need to make sure that people don't get away with saying bad things. You know, freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from consequences and all this kind of stuff. And I, I remember the first thing I said was, who, who are you arguing with here? Like, who disagrees with you? Who, who thinks that people shouldn't be held accountable for their actions? Right. That that position doesn't exist. Most people are kind of arguing that um, against a, a against a, a straw man, essentially. So what, what's really going on here? Well, Obviously the conversation isn't just about holding people to account, it's about holding them to account in an appropriate manner, okay? Now council culture, as far as I'm concerned, is a form of punishment, it's a form of social punishment, right? Um, and the golden rule of punishment is that the punishment must fit the crime, right? That's, that, that is the kind of unquestionable baseline from which we start uh, our kind of conception of justice that in terms of punishment, it always must fit the crime. It must be proportionate, right? Arbitrary punishment, is the behavior of despots. It's not the behavior of rational thinking human beings. So here's the question, right? If you cannot be, if you cannot first identify exactly to what extent you think somebody should be cancelled, right? Like what are we talking about here precisely? Do you mean that the tweet that they put out should be deleted? Do you mean that people should unfollow them on Twitter? Do you mean that they should get uh, dropped from their book deal? Do you think they should never get a book deal ever again? Do you think people shouldn't buy books that are already published that they've written? Do you think their employer should cut them off? Do you think no employer should should take them on again? Like, what exactly do you mean? What's the extent of this? That's the first part. Second, how are you gonna police this? How are you gonna make sure that the punishment only goes that far and doesn't exceed the appropriate level of punishment? cancel culture goes off the rails right this is we're talking about twitter here this kind of stuff just explodes and goes out of anyone's control if you cannot identify how you will prevent this social punishment from going off the rails and becoming a disproportionate punishment then what you're doing by advocating for cancel culture is you're advocating this machine for creating disproportionate punishment right like that is beyond ethically irresponsible I I cannot see how we can sensibly say that we're in favor of this form of punishment if we can't identify the extent to which the punishment should apply and how we're going to ensure that it only applies that much. That's why I'm against cancel culture. But it's got nothing to do with not wanting to hold people to account, even for things I said a long time ago. You know, if you discover a a video of me from 10 years ago saying something really horrible, be a bit weird because I would be 11 years old. But I think (laughs) the point remains that I would I would be quite grateful that someone's brought that up. And I would take it as an opportunity to apologize for it. Now, the other thing is this. If I knew that such a video existed, that I said something on YouTube that, you know, I, I, I regret or don't like. If it comes to my attention, I like to think that I'm in a position where I could quite comfortably say, hey, listen, everybody, I've just realized I said this thing five years ago and I now disagree with it. I now don't think it's true. Right. But what do we do with cancel culture? Do we think that cancel culture is encouraging people? To kind of actively seek out the positions that they used to hold and try to apologize and atone for them and publicly kind of redress them. No, of course not. If 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 when these kind of things come to light, we just completely and utterly try to destroy someone's reputation with absolutely no hope of of, of apology, then what you're going to see is just a scramble of people trying to annihilate any record of any mistake they've ever made. This isn't going to encourage people to go and seek out the mistakes and change them. It's going to encourage people to sweep them under the rug and try to try to cover them up. That's not the kind of system I think that people should be advocating for. I think we should be advocating for a situation in which people can come out if they've changed their mind on something and let people know instead of just pretending that they never said it in the first place. And we're not going to be able to encourage that if people know that when they come out on these issues and they say something and then they kind of bring to light that they used to believe this thing that they don't believe anymore. They're just going to get hounded for it. Um, So, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a skeptical person with cancel culture. But I don't think that's a particularly controversial uh, position for for someone like yourself or your listeners.
0: No, I, I like that because, you you know, a big example of it, you see it a lot over here, I mean, on, like, TV shows, reality TV shows, like, all these celebrities will, will go into this situation on this show, and then a tweet will come up from, like, 5, 10 years ago, and it's all over the newspapers. Everyone's going crazy on Twitter. And that person can then come out and apologise, and instead of using that as an opportunity to say, look, use a mainstream example of someone, you know, apologizing and admitting that something was wrong and showing that people can change. That's not enough. It's always, okay, but we need that person gone now. Like surely it would be more beneficial to, you know, the the, the people behind cancer culture to see someone in a mainstream format actually apologize and
1: move on and prove that people can change in the right way. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think so? I think so. Although, of course, some apologies are, of course, insincere, you know, Mm. if someone gets caught out saying something inappropriate, like, of course, they're going to come out and apologize for it, even if they're not really sorry, right, to try and save their skin. So it's going to, it's obviously difficult to try and delineate who's actually being sincere or not. But clearly, some people will be sincere it, it's very clear that some people have said things that they genuinely regret and genuinely wouldn't say today or just genuinely didn't really understand what the problem with, uh, was which potentially isn't their fault but we're also beginning to see people getting canceled for things that are a bit more questionable right it kind of began as this person did this horrible thing 3 years ago we should cancel them and people go well yeah the thing they did was really horrible but does that mean we should cancel them i'm not sure but now the debate has become well, the thing they did wasn't necessarily that bad. We're not entirely sure. They did something maybe a bit questionable that maybe hints at a kind of character flaw or something. We're not, we're not entirely sure what we think about this. Should they be canceled? It's like, no, we need to, we need to very clearly define what kind of behavior is subject to this social punishment um, and kind of the appropriateness of different levels of social punishment and how we're going to enforce it. Um, yeah, because I, I think you're right. Like, we're not going to encourage the world that we want to see do people who propose cancel culture here. Do they want people to come to believe in their ethical kind of ideals because of fear of punishment, because of fear of social uh, ostracization, or because they actually believe in those ethical ideals, because they actually come to kind of reflect on on what they believe uh, and realize that they were wrong about something? Like, which do you prefer? Like, clearly, clearly. We don't want kind of a republic of fear in which people are running around apologizing left, right and center, not because they're genuinely sorry, but because they're terrified of the social repercussions. But the only way that you're going to allow people to genuinely freely explore their mistakes uh, and their past wrongdoings and things uh, is to make sure that they know that by doing so, they're not risking stepping on a mine somewhere when they're kind of treading through the minefield and completely blowing up everything that they have ever uh, worked for. Now, of course, some people do deserve quite stringent and serious punishments for quite serious crimes, right? There are certain things that have been said or done that genuinely require a form of cancellation that pretty much um, lives up to the kind of thing that we're seeing on, on, on social media. Um, obviously, the worst crimes in this case don't need council culture, because that's what our criminal justice system is for. If someone does something really atrocious like a sexual assault or an assault or a kind of non-sexual assault or a murder or something like like we have other ways of dealing with this other than the Twitter mob. Right. There's a whole reason why we started to formalize our process of justice so that it's not just a bunch of people roaming around with pitchforks. We said, no, this is uncivilized. This is a bad idea. What happens if an innocent person is a subject of the mob? You know, we need due process. We need a legal system. That's why in the real world, we got rid of kind of this, this mob mentality and replaced it with a, with a functional legal justice system. Same thing's going to need to happen online as things begin to grow, because now for the first time in human history, We have the ability to do the equivalent of dropping a nuclear bomb on a single individual. We can turn the entire world's attention, not just the the village, the country, but the entire world's attention on a single individual. And that individual might not even be a celebrity. It might just be someone whose TikTok unexpectedly went viral or something like that. And the entire world focuses on them and hates them and wants to see their destruction. That is a very, very serious like tool Like the power of social media when it's weaponized is unlike anything that any any person or any government could have dreamed of even 20 years ago. Right. And we've made precisely zero attempt to ensure that this weapon is being yielded responsibly. Right. Until we can see some kind of responsible guidelines put in place about how this stuff is supposed to work, I'm not going to be any kind of part of it.
0: I like what you said there about the, the nuclear bomb um, example, because, yeah, I think it's everyone's worst fear that maybe open up social media one day and see a million notifications on Twitter. You know, your mind's instantly... Uh, such an overwhelming thing to happen to you, I imagine. And I think you mentioned it in a video before, you said it's almost like, you know, what people argue that, yeah, but it's an effective way of dealing with these people. But like you said, does, does it justify it? Because, you know, if every time someone was to shoplift we killed them, then that would definitely be effective in stopping people's shoplift. shoplift.
1: But does that make it right? Exactly right. A lot of people, there's another point that was made in the Oxford Union debate. People kept saying, this is a really efficient way to hold people's account. It works. It's like, yeah, like killing yourself is also an efficient way to get rid of a headache. Mm. But clearly that is a disproportionate response to the situation. Now, don't get me wrong. Some things, as I say, that people have said and done require or, or kind of seem to deserve genuine longstanding condemnation that that will require some real genuine apology and some real genuine reparation before people can uh, truly be forgiven, right? Um, But the two problems are firstly, that some people think that there is no forgiveness to be had, right? No, you know, some people get cancelled for sometimes bad things, sometimes really, really bad things, but never infinitely bad things, right? There must always be some barometer that someone can meet you know, as long as this falls out of the kind of stuff that would actually put someone in jail, you've got to kind of specify the kind of level to which somebody must um, atone for their mistakes to be kind of uh, granted a level of forgiveness. People people think that this um, that there's kind of no room for this. And a point that I'm certainly not the first to, to, to make is that many of the same people who advocate for cancel culture, uh, at least kind of in its left wing form, because it kind of creepingly exists on the right as well, like in the whole Colin Kaepernick situation. Um, but a lot of the people who were kind of on, on the left of politics, trying to, to cancel individuals and saying, look, I don't care what this person says and apologizes, you know, don't buy their book, don't employ them, nothing like that are the same people who advocate for a, um, for a kind of form of criminal justice system uh, that isn't based on retribution, right? That's based on rehabilitation. So when it comes to criminals who are behind bars, a lot of people think that the uh, that the retributive system of justice is a bad idea, which I think so too. I think, but that's due more to my philosophy on free will. Um, I don't think that our legal justice system should be based on revenge and desert and things like this. I think it should be, at least, there should be some attempt at rehabilitation. You cannot simultaneously hold that a murderer or a, you know, a a serial thief or something could be subject to complete overhauling character, reintroduction to society um, and and kind of going about their business almost as if it never happened. But someone who kind of said the N-word on Twitter 10 years ago, not really understanding what it meant, um, can never recover from that. It's like, yeah, I I don't see it.
0: Yeah, there there seems to be like... um like a genuine care behind this sometimes or originally there was. But now when I look at it, I almost see instances where it's like a game. It's, it's almost like hunting for sport. You see, like even on a small scale, like I'm definitely not in the position to be cancelled, but I've experienced instances where there's there's no judge, there's no jury, it's straight to the executioner. Like on this show, I try and or we try and speak to people from the entire political spectrum, so from the, from the left to the right. Um, as I mentioned to you earlier that we've spoken to, to Dave Rubin, Douglas Murray. Um, when well, my podcast partner I interviewed Douglas Murray. He got a, a lot of backlash, not because of anything he said, but just because he had a conversation with Douglas Murray. Similarly, I recently spoke to, to Dave Rubin. Now, I disagree with a lot of what Dave Rubin says. We have quite different political beliefs, and he knows that. I spoke to him about it. But it's just because I spoke to Dave Rubin. I get comments like, oh, I'm reporting your channel. I hope you get banned. And I'm thinking, but well, you haven't really taken the time to look at the channel and see, you know, the we've spoken to some seriously far left people. It almost seems like there's a there's a glory in it. Do you think that there, there is some people out there that just love to see the world burn?
1: I think there's certainly a sense of um, what. Douglas Murray called in The Madness of Crowd, although I don't think it was his term, I think he's quoting someone else, uh, St. George in retirement syndrome. Mm. This idea that once St. George kind of slays the dragon, right, and and kind of does the big task and genuinely kind of wins the fight, he then spends the rest of his life kind of sitting around, like, what's he got to do? Like, you know, he's this fearless great warrior, but he's got got nothing to fight. So maybe he starts kind of going out and looking for things Mm. to try and fight kind of looking for things that maybe aren't actually that threatening, but plays them up so that he can he can do the fight and kind of take the glory. I think that that's some of that is what's happening on, on social media here, right? There are the, the kind of social justice movements to which these things are attached, movements against hate speech, which are kind of connected to forms of discrimination, right? Like they've had some genuinely commendable histories, right? Like, but when, when it kind of gets to a point that, a lot of at least kind of the, the, the legal um, uh, inequalities that existed have been eradicated. Now we're kind of talking about more vague social problems, which genuinely definitely exist. But there aren't as many as they used to be, right? And there aren't as many in particular areas as they used to be. So maybe people are kind of looking for something to fight for because everybody likes to be kind of in favor of a social movement. Everybody likes to kind of stand up for something that seems important. People are far more willing to do it with things that aren't actually that controversial, right? Like, you know, if if somebody's asked kind of, do you think that, what do you think about men and women equality? They'll say, yeah, I believe that men and women are equal, should be treated equally and all this kind of stuff. And they'll say it very fiercely and forcefully as if they're making a point that people are really going to disagree with. Obviously there are people who don't think that, but like the mainstream view is is very clear on this now. Like it's not politically tenable for someone to come out and say that they're not in favor of that. Um, If you want to see some kind of real bravery in positions, then look for positions that actually aren't generally already accepted. Um, So I think that what people do is they're supporting a cause which comes to receive kind of general social acceptance, you know, like an anti-racist movement, right? Like it used to be quite difficult to be anti-racist. You know, you would have been mocked and ridiculed and kind of laughed out of the ethical sphere. But now, although obviously there's a lot of backlash against these movements, there's a lot of support as well. And at least kind of on on social media platforms in the Silicon Valley, in Hollywood and the media, like you're going to receive a lot of support for this kind of stuff. Um, And so there's kind of no there's there's not as much of a fight as there used to be on those issues for a lot of people. Of course, it depends who you are and exactly what issue you're talking about. But what you're kind of left with is this situation where someone says something that's maybe kind of a little bit indicative of maybe a, a kind of racial bias that they might have. you pick it up and you say, this is it. We need to fight this with all our force because I'm an anti-racist activist and I'm doing everything I can to try and save the world. And because that's kind of the only thing they've got right in their kind of present concern, they kind of treat it as though it's, it's, it's much bigger than it actually is. It's like, but there are lots of very real problems that we could be looking at and, and trying to solve and throwing our weight behind. But because they're a little harder to do, they're actually harder to solve. It's harder to provide a solution for, you know, racist attitudes within society. It's harder to propose a solution for, you know, the, the destructive um, force of glo- uh, global warming or animal agriculture or something. It's harder to do this. So people aren't willing. They spend more time trying to pick fights with smaller issues and pretending that they're big issues to try and take some of the glory. Of course, that's not true of all people, but I think it's certainly true of some.
0: Uh, where do we see this heading? Because like you and I, people like us, we're have these conversations. You can have these debates. But I feel like the people that love cancel culture aren't going to be listening to those conversations. They aren't going to be listening to those debates. Where do you see cancel culture heading? Do you see it getting better or do you see it getting worse and worse?
1: It's, it's difficult to say. I mean, you know, the, these people don't have to listen to the conversations that we're having. No one's forcing them to, you know, I, I'm not asking for people to listen to what I say. I'm asking for people to allow others the right to listen to what I have to say. You know, that's, that's the, that's the real kind of key to the, to the free speech element of this. Although cancel culture is different. Like people who advocate for cancel culture will say that they are pro free speech. They say, you can say whatever you want, but then you have to accept the consequences in return. Um, like, yeah, this is, this is true, right? But there's a moral question of kind of whether we should be participating in something that we think is kind of too much, right? Where it's going is impossible to say. I I really don't know. I I think that there's still a a, a very kind of, I don't think there's kind of a majority opinion on this. I think that there's, it's unclear on this issue where the tide is moving, whether it's kind of moving towards people who are like, OK, look, I see why cancel culture exists. But come on, guys, this is too much. We can we can think of a different way to solve these problems. Or if it's moving towards this kind of absolutist click, 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 Well, you said this and now you're getting, you know, is this you? That kind of attitude towards towards kind of social um, social retribution. Like I genuinely don't know. I don't know. I know which way I hope it's moving. Um, but the problem is because social media is so new. Right. And people say social media is new. It's not just that it's new, it's that it, it, it's like unthinkably new, right? Like the invention of the internet and social media is probably the most significant human development since the invention of the printing press. Like, it, there's, just, there's just no question. It, it is one of the most important and consequential things that has ever happened in human history. And it happened what, like 20 years ago? 20 years ago, right? This is like, this is like living in like, like 20 years after the printing press has been invented, right? like and, and, and trying to kind of figure out how to how to do publishing and how to do writing like we are at the we, we are so so in the beginning stages of this that it, it, it's impossible to even comprehend right people kind of get used to it because on a human life scale 20 years is, is a fairly long time we've had 20 years to kind of work out how this stuff works and so it's like you, you have just no idea right given that this is one of the most important things that has ever happened in human history, and we've only been doing it for 20 years. It's like, we better be very, very careful about what we're we're kind of allowing and what we're doing here and how we're treating social media. Um, I think that the big kind of, the big deciding factor will be when, um, as this argument continues to rage on about whether things like Google, Twitter, Facebook, whether these are platforms or whether they're publishers, right? Because one of the reasons why people are kind of uh, arguing that, the, these companies should be able to kind of cancel people's accounts or, or say that they're not allowed to say certain things is because, you know, they're private companies. They can do what they want. They can accept who they want and who, and who they don't want. But if that's the case, then the argument goes, they need to be held to similar standards of kind of material as, as publishers are. It's like newspapers are. So if someone puts out a tweet, if Twitter is saying we're not just kind of this neutral platform, we kind of decide what we want on the platform and what we don't like, hey, that's fine. But then you need to be treated like a newspaper who does the same thing. So if someone tweets something slanderous, Twitter should be held accountable. I'm sure that's something Twitter don't want, right? That kind of raging debate, the settling of that debate is going to have a lot to say about what social media is, what its powers are, what it can do. Um, Because, you know, like if, if it kind of went more down the route of saying that Twitter should be treated more like a publisher, then as people begin to try and kind of mount of social pariah around a single individual, Twitter could just be be forced essentially by the government or something to shut that down, right? But we're not even going to be able to talk about whether that power is appropriate until we know whether or not, like, that's the kind of uh, company that Twitter's going to be. So honestly, I have no idea, but I think it's going to depend a lot on the development of basically what social media is, what role it has to play in our communications.
0: Yeah, I I love that. And I want to talk about um, big tech, but before we get there, I just want to touch over one more exa- uh, one more example. We were talking about cancer culture there. Jordan Peterson's new book came out this week. Um, but if you remember, there were a lot of issues a while back with employees at, at Penguin Random House calling uh, for the publisher to, to drop Jordan, um, assumingly because their views didn't align with his. How dangerous do you think that is? And... I just feel like I don't want to live in a world in which, you know, someone's not allowed to have a different opinion to me, because I will actively go out and read books from people who have different political opinions to me, because I just like to understand the perspectives. But if it, can you see a scenario in which something like this happens again and has results? Because I, I think that would be a very, Mm. very bad thing to happen.
1: Well, let's not kind of undersell the case here, right? Because There's a there's a tendency to caricature or euphemise the argument from both sides here, right? So when you say something like people are trying to cancel people they disagree with, that's not how they see it, right? Like they're they're not saying I disagree with this person, so they shouldn't be published. Clearly they're saying more than that, right? They're saying that what this person is saying is is dangerous or harmful. Um, you know, Jordan Peterson receives accusations of transphobia and sexism and all of these kinds of things. And they say these are horrible, dangerous things, and our publishing house shouldn't be shouldn't be promoting them. Now, like Penguin Random House can can publish whoever the hell they want. Like, it, honestly, like it, it's a similar issue to like the, the platforming thing. Um, you know, people seem to think that if somewhere refuses to platform someone, they're kind of infringing on free speech. It's not how it works, right? My position is this though, if Jordan Peterson has already been offered the book deal, right, and then people come along and say, hey, like I want you to, to kind of uh, not allow this to go forward, this is where the problem raises, right? Because Penguin can publish whoever they want, right? They don't have to publish anyone. They can publish whoever they choose. But once they've kind of given that offer, once it's already in motion, if that then is kind of stopped because of some kind of like uh, moral protest or something, that's when I think a problem is raised. Now, Penguin is in their legal right to to stop production immediately if they want to. But morally speaking, I think that would be a that would be a horrible decision. And it's different from the moral decision not to publish him in the first place. If they looked at his work said, this is controversial stuff, we don't really agree with what this guy's saying, we don't really want to put our name to it, we don't want to publish it, fine, whatever. But if they've already said, yeah, no, we're fine with this, and then someone crops up and says, hey, I don't really, I'm not really comfortable with this, and then they start kind of crapping themselves and think, oh no, we need to, we need to pull this off the shelves or something, then it just shows that kind of, you know, Penguin Random House is kind of being gripped by the throat by yeah. by quite a loud minority, because it's very clearly a minority of people who literally think the book shouldn't be published, right? Um, I don't think it would be too problematic in practice, because if Penguin Random House had put the book out of publication, you think Jordan Peterson couldn't have found a different publisher? I'm sure he'd have managed it. The problem is when this starts happening, when this starts kind of trickling down, as it were, there was a, an author that pro- cropped up in my Twitter feed for some reason the other day, um, because he posted about, I think like Ben Shapiro retweeted him or something, because. He'd written a book about, um, I think it was something surrounding like transgender issues or something from a right-wing perspective. And I have no interest in reading this, this book. For all I can tell, it might have been some kind of weird crackpot conspiracy theory. But the guy said, Amazon just removed my book from Audible and from, and from the main store. You now can't buy it. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. So I looked up the book. And I found it on Blackwells, and I couldn't seem to order it from Blackwells. I thought, that's weird. And I found it on Waterstones. And, and there I could, I could finally order it. Right? I was like, okay, so you can buy it somewhere. And I was like, I'm going to buy it. Right? And I bought the book because I thought to myself, like, nobody really knows who this author is. He's not like a famous author. right? If he gets completely dropped and banned by Amazon, he's not going to be able to make enough noise to kind of make sure that book still gets published. He will have just legitimately been kind of unpublished by a platform because they don't like what he had to say. It made me kind of want to buy the book. I'm probably not going to read the book, but I was like, I just I want to have this restricted material. You know, if someone tells me I'm not allowed to read something, it makes me want to at least own that book, right? It's like, yeah, Jordan Peterson would have been fine, but that guy probably wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And so when people like to say things like, oh, you know, calm down, like this isn't a big deal. It's Jordan Peterson. He's this big dude. He's going to get published, whatever. It's like you're missing the point, right? This is indicative of a kind of of a mode of operation within publishing houses that so long as someone is sufficiently upset by something, it can be taken out of publication. Of course, there are legitimate reasons to take things out of publication. Um, but I don't think that someone like Jordan Peterson fulfills those those, those criteria. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. I- it's interesting you say that. I did a similar thing a
0: while ago with an you know, maybe she's not a a uh, unknown author, but when J.K. Rowling brought out her latest book, and everyone was trying to to cancel that before you know it even come out, people had no one had read the book, but everyone had an opinion on it, um, and I have no interest in reading the books. So, I, you know, I I've, I love Harry Potter, but I got no interest in crime fiction. But I remember I I I kept saying to myself I'm gonna buy this book I'm gonna buy this book just because I was thinking well I'll just vote with my vote with my pound you know what I mean I I, I had I didn't see where the argument was coming from and you know J.K. Rowland doesn't need my ten pound I'm sure she'll be fine but yeah I, I it's interesting in, in that scenario especially because that was a, a complete work of fiction and, and no one had even had, had read they just read I remember there was a an interview on. Good morning, Britain, with uh, Piers Morgan, and the uh, the main, you know, the main head of, you know, the the cancel brigade behind it was 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 arguing, and Piers said to him, "Have you read the book?" And he said, "Well, no, but I've read an extensive review, and I and I yeah. thought that says everything right there, man.
1: It does. I I saw that clip, um, and." Yeah, that that's kind of the problem here and it, and it also raises this question of like what are we talking about here because people think that jk rowling should be cancelled right but yeah. what, what what does that mean like i'm sure that not everybody thinks that i think some people just think something like what she said on twitter was transphobic and it yeah. should be taken off twitter some people might go further and say oh i don't want to support her work so i'm not going to buy her books anymore that's fine you know do what you want like if you want to kind of deprive yourself of Harry Potter because you don't like what the author said unrelatedly elsewhere. Like, that's your prerogative. Do as as you please. But if you say something like these books should be taken out of publication, then you're in trouble. But I don't think anyone was saying that. Like, I certainly didn't see anyone seriously suggesting that, you know, Harry Potter should no longer be published or something. Right. So I don't think that it's like one of the more serious cases of cancel culture, but there was still definitely this kind of overwhelming feeling that JK Rowling is now a bad guy, right. Is, Is now kind of a bad person is now this this meme of a bad person, um, shouldn't support their their work. Obviously you have a legal right to, we're not saying they should be kind of taken off the shelves, but morally speaking, you shouldn't be buying this book. Um, then again, we're into the question of, of a kind of moral, social punishment, form of punishment, which might be legitimate. Maybe what she said was insensitive and rude and wrong, and she should suffer some kind of consequence for it. But how far are we going to let that, that, that go? And you've got to be very specific about your complaint, because if your complaint is... J.K. Rowling said something transphobic on Twitter, so I don't want to support her by buying her new book. Fine. If your complaint is, well, J.K. Rowling said something transphobic on Twitter, and I think that her new book is also transphobic, that's a different claim, right? Then you have to prove both of those, both of those things are true, right? Like you, you are perfectly within your rights to say, well, I haven't read this book. I don't know this what this book is about. I'm not going to read it because I don't want to, because I don't want to support this woman who elsewhere says something I find intolerable. That's fine. You can do that. But don't say the book's transphobic if you haven't read it. That would be the same thing as saying that the tweet is transphobic if you haven't actually read the tweet, which is something that a lot of people did as well. Um, there's no problem with having an opinion on these things. And in fact, kind of, as you say, as you would use your purchasing power to try and move things in one direction by buying the book, other people use their purchasing power to move it in the other direction by not buying the book. That's great, welcome to the free market. But morally speaking, you gotta make sure that you actually know what you're talking about. If you're gonna make a claim, and especially if the kind of claim that will tarnish someone's reputation for the rest of their lives, you better make sure it's accurate. And it may well be accurate, as you say, like it may well be that this book is transphobic. I have no idea, I haven't read it, but I'm not gonna claim that it is until I've read it. I'm also not gonna claim that it's not until I've read it. I've got nothing to say about that book because I haven't read it. And that's the way it will remain.
0: If anyone watching this right now is familiar with you and, and your channel, they'll know that you are a, you know, a, a, a proud vegan. Um, you know, you've made you've made videos on a lot of hot topics. We've talked about cancer culture last one. But you mentioned in in a video on your channel that it wasn't until you made maybe one or two videos on being vegan that you seemed to evoke a stronger response from that than any of the other controversial or, you know, brave conversations that you'd had on your channel. Why do you think it was veganism that sort of evoked the most emotion in people's response?
1: I think it may well be because the audience that I had built for myself didn't already agree. Right. Mm. The thing is like, when I first started making videos about religion, it wasn't seen by very many people. And then it gets shared on like a Reddit page or something amongst other atheists. And atheists look at it and they think, oh, this guy puts it in a, in a funny or relatable way or whatever, say so subscribe and start building the channel. And I'll make, a, I'll make videos and videos and videos and I'll receive a lot of praise, right? Because of the fact that I've built up this audience of people who agree with what I have to say. And my, my kind of purpose here is to say, well, I know that you will kind of agree with me here. That we're all kind of atheists basically speaking in, the, in this in this kind of community but my job is to kind of try to present atheistic information in a way that kind of makes sense that maybe can support your own arguments or something like that that changed with the veganism because now it's like it's not here's an issue that i know you agree with me upon that i'm going to kind of give you a way to argue it's like here's something i know you don't agree with and let me tell you why i think it's 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 wrong what we're doing here and for the first time the shoes on the other foot right now a lot of my subscribers and now the people at whom the criticism is directed, not the people at whom kind of the, the argument is kind of meant to be helping, right? It's the exact opposite, opposite, right? And I've had a lot of really great feedback from people who either don't care because they're like, yeah, man, like it's your channel, do what you want, because of course, like who really cares about what some YouTuber is saying about animal agriculture? Like if you don't care, stop watching, it's fine. Some people have been like, wow, this has been really great because I'd never thought about these issues and I'm really glad that you kind of brought them to the table. But a lot of people have been very, very, very upset, incredibly upset. They say, oh, I can't believe you're doing this. You know, I'm going to unsubscribe. You've joined this cult of veganism, this religion. Don't you know that plants feel pain? All this kind of this kind of ridiculous nonsense that I, I've never received so much of it. Right. And I think it's because a lot of the time, like, you know, Christians wouldn't really bother because they'd see what I'm doing. They would think yeah, like people would make responses, but they're not gonna like leave a comment and stuff because they know they're kind of stepping into a lion's den uh, and they're just gonna kind of get, get, get all, all the commenters are gonna disagree with them. It's gonna be, it's gonna be horrible. But now like people know that a significant proportion of my audience disagrees, So they feel a lot more comfortable making these comments. Um, and it's just been hilarious to see because the, the, the kind of, I, I used to, I, a lot of the like atheist community will complain about how I just can't believe these people believe this stuff. I can't believe people still think that the earth is 10,000 years old. I can't believe people are still asking, you know, if, if humans came from monkeys, why are they still monkeys? Right. The atheist community, that's that, that question is a meme in the atheist community because people are like, I cannot believe that people are still asking that as if we haven't presented an answer. That is exactly how it feels when someone asks, but where do you get your protein or, but don't animals feel, uh, don't, you know, don't plants feel pain or animals eat other animals in the wild. Like that—that that is the same level of like. Do you know? Like I have answered this question so many times, as if it even needs answering, because it's such a ridiculous question. But I'll answer it. I'll do it. And I've done it so many times. People are still asking it, right? So I've—I've—I've I've, I've never seen more of that kind of stuff, of that just endless, persistent, nonsensical questioning, than I have from these like intense meat eaters. And I think part of the reason for it as well is because whereas the christian might look at what i'm saying and think man this guy's this guy's ridiculous he's stupid he doesn't understand the argument but it's not like it's not like threatening in any way because yeah i might make other people kind of less likely to be a christian it's not going to affect them like they can still continue being a christian and arguing in 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 the opposite direction as as they please but with vegan stuff well if, if i continue to convince people to stop eating meat that's going to start like spreading right there's going to be there's going to be consequences of that if enough people believe that it's wrong to eat meat there are going to be restrictions in place it's going to be a meat tax things are going to be taken off the shelves you know mcdonald's are going to change their menu so people are like ah i don't want this and they allow this addiction that they have to the taste of these animals flesh and secretions to clog up not only their arteries as red meat does but also their thinking right it's in the it's in the same way that like you know um people who are, who, people who are like lusting over someone won't think straight because they're just so, you know, their are kind of sensory pleasures just completely overwhelm their rational thinking. I mean, I think the same thing is happening here, except that we're, we're talking about a different sensory pleasure. We're talking about taste pleasure. And honestly, it leads to some of the most ju- just incomprehensively in, in bad arguments and debates and discussions that I've ever had to sit through in my entire life because people just don't get it. When people, when, when I first went vegan, People warned me that I might develop brain damage or something. I didn't realize that if I was going to develop brain damage from becoming vegan, it would be because of all of the bloody carnist comments that I have to deal with on TikTok. Honestly, it is just the worst like thing to have to sit through. These the, the people who are just... just just saying nothing as if it means something, just, just asking these ridiculous questions as if no vegan has ever thought of this, you know, that they're, they're like, oh, but don't animals eat other animals? You know, and they say it in a very, it's, it's not like people are saying, hey man, like I see what you're saying, but like, what about this? They say, uh, we're omnivores, I have canine teeth, and you know, you don't judge the lion for dining on the gazelle. It's like, wow, genius. As it, as if no vegan has ever thought of this, as if, as if this hasn't been responded to, as if you're like the first person to bring this up and there isn't an appropriate response. It's honestly insane and you can you can someone will say oh well you know i eat meat because i have canines and i'll say you know which animal has the largest canines is the hippo you know the herbivore and instead of kind of going oh yeah good point you're right they go yeah yeah well 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 what about what about this what about this thing what about that thing and it just goes on and on and on and on it's like hold on we need to stop rewind recognize that pretty much everything we think about animal ethics at the moment is completely wrong it's just just utterly and, and incomprehensibly bad and wrong and unjustified um, and start again from, from the ground up, but no one's willing to do it because of the fact that they're addicted to the taste of their flesh and secretions.
0: Another, we mentioned your channel there, a video on your channel I think was v- ridiculously good. Um, I, the title might've been called, should I sell all my possessions? I think that was the title. Mm. Um, and, and you put this quote in there. I've got it on my screen. Um, I think it was Peter Singer. And it says, if it is in our power to prevent something bad from happening without thereby sacrificing anything of comparable moral importance, we ought morally to do it. So with that in mind, when I when I read that, I was thinking I was you know questioning myself and I was thinking if I'm out, if I'm on my way to work in the morning and I reject a charity appeal in the middle of the street that I would have time for, but I just choose to reject it. That's asking for maybe a few quid a month to help feed starving children. I reject it. I carry on. But then on that same walk to work, I stop and buy an overly expensive coffee before I go into the office. Is that mor-
1: should I feel shame? Is that morally wrong? I think it depends, right? It's, it's, it's a very nuanced issue in my view. I think that in that isolated situation, it's probably, it's probably wrong right? If you've got this one situation, this one kind of opportunity to help someone in need, and you decide to buy a coffee instead, I think you've you've failed to discharge an ethical duty. The problem is that we don't live in a world where we have this kind of one option, right? Peter Singer's famous example is the drowning child, right? And it comes from um, the, the passage you just quoted was from Famine, Affluence and Morality, which is uh, a kind of early essay that he wrote on, on this subject. And he asks the reader to consider a uh, walking along and you see a, a child drowning in a shallow pond, you can go and save this child. Uh, but if you do so, you'll ruin your shoes. And he says, you know, if someone refuses to save the child on the grounds that it will like ruin their shoes, they'd be an ethical monster. That would be one of the most horrible things you could do. And yet if those shoes cost about 50 pounds, right, and someone comes to you and says, hey, listen, you can save this child drowning on the other side of the world. We're not drowning, but starving on the other side of the world or dying of malaria by giving us 50 pounds. Um, is it not the same thing by refusing to give that money? Cause you want to buy some shoes instead? isn't, is that not the same thing as refusing to save the drowning child? Because you're going to ruin your shoes and like on the surface of it. Yeah. Like, why would it make a difference? How far away the person is, right? Like if it's wrong for me to kind of save the 50 pounds that I want to kind of keep kind of in my shoes as an asset and not save that child. Why is that so wrong? But if you take that child and just move them far away, now suddenly it's 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 okay. It's permissible for me to refuse to save them. And that's the power of Peter Singer's argument. It's like, ah oh, man, I really can't see a way around this. And that's because I don't think there is one. I think that in that situation, they are essentially the same. The problem is, right, and the reason this is complicated is because we don't live in a world where you're just going to have kind of one option to save somebody. You've got charities left, right, and center. You've got endless ways in which you could continue to pauperize yourself, sell all of your possessions, and give to these various charities. The situation is more analogous to walking down the road and seeing, like, thousands and thousands of children all drowning in a pond, right? Now, clearly, you should probably try and save some of them, right? But what if it's the case that, like... An example I gave in the video that, that, that you mentioned, um, there's a paper, and I can't remember the guy who wrote it, but the paper's called Sometimes It's Okay to Let the Baby Drown, or something like that, which is a pretty, or The Child Drown, it's a fairly horrible title, but, but he imagines this situation in which hackers have got into your bank account, and they're taking out $5 every, you know, every, every five minutes, um, and... There's some legal loophole, which means that the bank can't reimburse you. And the only way for you to stop it happening is to go to the bank and cancel your account. And if you run out of money in your account, the bank will just start seizing your belongings to make up for the debt, right? So you're losing $5 every single five minutes until you go to the bank and stop them. Now, let's say on your way to the bank, you come across like tens of thousands of drowning children and they take five minutes each to save. Question is, how many children are you going to save? Clearly it would be wrong to walk past them and not save any of them. But if you save one child, you lose $5. Okay, fine. Save two, you lose 10. Okay. So on, so forth. What if it's going to cost you like a grand? Maybe you should probably still save the child, I guess. What if it's going to be like 10 grand? Okay. Yeah. No, this is, this is horrible. Of course, money is never as important as a child's Like we should probably still save the children. Okay. What if like now the bank is like seizing your house and taken away your car, and you're not going to have anywhere to live because, you know, the money is still coming out and they need to repay. Well, I think we would say it's at least permissible at some point around that area for the person to stop saving the children, go into the bank and, and stop their account, even though the rest of the children are going to die. Now we have to imagine that this situation repeats every single day. Every day when you wake up, the money's coming out of your account. And the only way to stop it is for you to go and go into the bank. You live just next to the bank. Though, so you can wake up first thing, go straight to the bank and cancel your account. But every single day, there's a new batch of children just dying all in front of you. Um, and the question is, like, how do you live your life? Right? Do you live your life such that you, you spend all of your time and effort saving these children up until the point where the bank is literally going to seize your house? Right? What that means is that you will never, ever have enough money to ever buy an album, have a Spotify subscription to go out for a meal, to spend time with your family, to go on a holiday, to, to do any of this kind of stuff. The only thing that you will ever do in your entire life is own a house and save drowning children. That seems too much to ask of a person. Right? It seems like there's some room to say that this person should be able to allow some of those children to die, to save some of their money, even, even just for the sake of doing like more trivial things like you know, going on a holiday or eating a nice meal or listening to some music or buying a guitar, whatever it might be, right? There seems to be at least some permissibility in here. The question at least is not as simple as it first seems. So if we, if we put forward this, this principle that Singer puts forward, which is that if we can, you know, if we can save somebody without sacrificing something of considerable moral importance, like our shoes, then we should do it. Yes, absolutely. The problem is, is that, is that principle universalizable? Can, can we generalize it to the extent that you should always be doing that, right? And I'm not sure that that's so obvious because if you make the situations actually the same with the kind of endless supply of drowning children that you will always be able to save by continually selling more of your possessions. I don't think we would think someone is doing anything wrong by, you know, going to the bank, putting a stop on the money going out of their account, even though they may have to allow some children to die for that. Um, and if that's true, then I think analogously, it's not wrong to sometimes refuse to give to charity. I think it would be wrong to never give to charity or never do anything charitable in the same way that it would be wrong to walk past all of the children and not save a single one of them. But on some days, at some some points, and at some point along the track of kind of saving the children, you're going to have to say, you know, sorry, bucko, I'm going to the bank. And I think that's the equivalent of saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give this person my money. I'm going to go and buy a coffee. It's okay to generally have a rule by which you allow yourself to do that even if kind of in isolation if that were the kind of only considerable factors in play what you would have done there would have been wrong you've got to consider the context you've got to cons- consider the repeatability you've got to cons- consider the kind of implications that this view will have for the rest of your entire life
0: absolutely amazing man i think everyone listening now is weighing up their morning starbucks after that that's uh quite an answer my it's, it's
1: worth reading um Peter Singer wrote a book called The Life You Can Save, which is essentially kind of a, a, an expanded version of this line of thought. And I remember reading it. it was one of the most troublesome things I'd ever read. It was after I read Animal Liberation, because I read Animal Liberation and it ruined my life because it made me a vegan. And I can never, ever go back now um, because Peter Singer argued it so powerfully. And then I saw this book about how I'm going to have to sell all my possessions. And I was like, oh, man, come on, surely not. Mate, you've already done the vegan thing. Don't, don't, don't kind of double whammy me here. So, I read it and I found it so compelling and amazing. And it it kind of, I went for a walk and considered selling all of my possessions. Like, um, and then I gave it more thought and realized that there are ways around this, that there aren't ways around the vegan argument. There's no way around the argument that it's wrong to force a pig into a gas chamber so that we can eat a bacon sandwich. There is just no way around that. With the charity thing, there's a bit more room to, to maneuver. So, I'd recommend to anyone who is interested in this line of thought to read that book because it did exactly that to me. It made me uh, just spend a considerable amount of time thinking, man, do I really need to just go and sell all kind of non-essential possessions that I own? My conclusion was no, but I'm still not entirely sure about that. You know, I'm still, I'm still willing to be convinced in another direction. Maybe I'll speak to Peter Singer again and see if he can talk me into it. But uh, for now, I still remain kind of in a position where I think you are allowed to buy a coffee every now and again.
0: And we're going to find out more about your favorite books just after this and our final two questions. But before we get there, the last one on this topic, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. So it's that question. Is it evil to be a billionaire? Because how do we weigh up the person, the billionaire's personal gain, their greed, some might say, and the value they provide? So if we take a Jeff Bezos, people say he pays no tax. You know, he treats his employees poorly. He's an an evil man in that regard. But you can't deny he provides a really, really accessible service to millions of users, which make a lot of our lives simpler. Like, you know, if my kid needs new shoes for school tomorrow morning, I know they'll be here in time by tomorrow morning. It's that easy. And, you know, it, it makes a lot of people's lives simpler. So how do we weigh up that, you know, their faults and what they provide? Is it evil to be a billionaire?
1: Well, there are, there are considerations here. Firstly, whether that service would still exist if he took a significant pay cut. And I think probably, yeah, I think Amazon would be fine if it paid its CEO, although he's not the CEO anymore as he stepped down. I don't know if that's actually come to effect yet. Um, yeah, if he was making a bit less money, I'm sure Amazon would still function. If he was making a lot less money, it would probably still function. If he was making a lot, lot less money, it would probably still function, right? There's probably some extent to which if you kind of lower the pay enough, it's actually going to start affecting the functionality of the of the company, but I think that like the current excessive levels of wealth that are being generated by a company like Amazon, um, can't be ethically justified. I do also think that you say something like, you know, it provides an efficient service, but at what cost, right? Because, uh, Amazon have also had a lot of problem with kind of exploitative, um, working conditions, right? Um, and I, I don't actually know too much about this. I don't know how much accuracy there is in this, but if it's true, which I suspect it is, at least in some cases, that, uh, the kind of. Frontline workers of Amazon are being maybe underpaid, they haven't got great working conditions, all of this kind of stuff. Should we ethically permit this kind of efficiency, this expediency of next day delivery if it comes at the cost of workers' rights or something like that? I'm not entirely sure that that's a tenable position. Uh, There are certain things that we should probably not allow to be sacrificed in the name of efficiency, right? Uh, And maybe one of those things is workers' rights. Maybe another one of those things is wealth hoarding. Maybe we say that actually, yeah, even if it meant that Amazon deliveries took two days rather than one day to arrive, it would still be better if we lived in a world where like, yeah, your parcels took one day extra to to, to come to your door, but everybody could afford to eat, right? Like that's probably more important.
0: The
1: thing is like, I don't know how this all works, right? I don't know how it's connected. I don't know what the actual effects would be um, I don't even know what the process would be if we decided to kind of say that, well, billionaires are immoral, they shouldn't exist. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean that Jeff Bezos has a has a kind of incentive, a moral imperative to give away his money? Does it mean that we should change the law so that they come and like seize a bunch of his money? Is that how it should work? <laughs> or should we just kind of raise taxes on him? Should we close up the tax loopholes? Like there are many different ways to approach answering the question by saying that it's immoral. Like, what does this mean? Does this just mean we tax him more from now on? Does it mean we kind of, go back historically and kind of work out how much we should have been taxing him and kind of take that money from his estate, that seems a bit dodgy. We can't hold people to laws that weren't in place at the time the thing was committed, right? So that can't be an option. Like, it's not entirely clear what we'd actually do. But I think that going forward, we certainly need to be more careful of this kind of thing and recognize that, no, I don't think I don't think it's, it's ethically permissible for any man to hoard that amount of wealth if they're not going to do something productive with it. And of course, we don't know exactly what he plans to do with all this money. Um, Peter Singer took part in a debate at, at the Oxford Union sometime like last year or the year before. And the motion was, it is immoral to be a billionaire. Um, and Peter Singer opposed that motion to many people's surprise. And he criticized the wording and he said, I don't think it's immoral to be a billionaire. I think it's immoral to die a billionaire. I don't think it's immoral to be a billionaire. Right? It, it, it all depends on what you're doing with the money, right? If the money is being putting, put to good use, then it, it's probably fine, right? Maybe we could find more efficient ways of generating that kind of wealth and putting it to good use than just kind of doing it through Jeff Bezos or something. Um, but I think it's it's not so much that it's immoral to be a billionaire. I think it's immoral to spend money irresponsibly, and I think that that's true of a billionaire just as it is of someone who's making thirty thousand pounds a year. Um, because you know we all have an opportunity to to make sacrifices. Uh, for the benefit of other people. It just so happens that Jeff Jeff Bezos has more of an opportunity to make more sacrifices, um, but the level of obligation that exists within an individual to make sure that they're doing the best thing they can with their resources and their money and their effort and their time, I think applies across all people. So although it's kind of most grossly um, uh, violated in the case of billionaires, I think that the duty that we have to spend our money responsibly uh, exists within all people.
0: Amazing. So I mentioned the, our last two questions. Let's get to them now, our quick fire questions. We've, we've mentioned one or two books throughout this podcast, but are, what are the main books that have had the biggest impact on your life so far?
1: Uh, certainly Animal Liberation. There's no way around that um, because it was the book that made me go vegan, which is probably the most significant philosophical shift that's ever happened to me. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure. Well, actually, look read animal liberation, right? Just read the first chapter. It's about 20 pages long. It's made pretty much everyone I know go vegan. It's so powerfully written and so clearly and precisely put that I'd recommend it to absolutely. It should be essential reading to anybody who considers themselves a serious ethical thinker. Um, So that book has a very, very special place in my my bookshelf actually, because I've got the the signed version that Peter Singer uh, inscribed when he was on the podcast, which is really nice. That's one of my most prized possessions. Some of the other books that have had the most influence on me, I think, are probably "Letters to a Young Contrarian" by Christopher Hitchens. was a very important book because it's it's quite short. It's not the most famous book that Hitchens ever wrote. Probably also not the most impressive. It it kind of indulges in sophistry sometimes. I think it's not entirely clear what the project is, Um, but it just sums up his approach to debate and discussion, which is something I've been heavily influenced by, Um, and like a lot of that is encapsulated and led us to a young contrarian, right? It's not so much about the substance, but that book is about the way it's put across the kind of the quips and the mannerisms and the the phraseology of of Christopher Hitchens is is just brilliantly put in that book. And it's a very self-aware book because it's, it's a book about how to be a contrarian. It's about what it means to be a rebel, what it means to be a radical. And that's just everything Hitchens was and everything that people like myself wish to be on issues of importance like veganism. So that was another really important book. Um, aside from that, uh, it's, it's, it's such a difficult question, you know, to, to think of these things kind of, um, off the top of the, off the top of the head, um, because there there are kind of books that I've enjoyed, like my favorite fiction book is probably The Catcher in the Rye. Um, you know, I really enjoyed, uh, reading Bill Bryson's books, like a short history of nearly everything, but I wouldn't say that they've had like a, an important impact on my life in the same way that something like Animal Liberation letters to a young contrarian house, those would probably be the two that I would point to. Awesome.
0: So my last question for you now, this could be anything. It could be your work. It could be your study. It could be your family, but right now for Alex O'Connor, what makes a life worth living?
1: Uh, wow. um, I'm not sure. Uh, Obviously, it's a very, very big question. I know it's supposed to be quick fire, but it's like, oh no, take your I time. I, I, don't know if there's a, I don't know if there's a, a, a kind of universal answer to that question. But I think that um, there's nothing, there's nothing you can say here that isn't really a cliche. Like you yeah. know, leave the world better than it was when you entered it, or something like that. Um, but I think the reason that those are, those kind of approaches to these questions are so are, are cliches is because they contain an element of perennial truth. Yeah. That yeah, if if you can if you can kind of lay on your deathbed and think there are kind of a significant number of good things that now exist in the world or have happened in the world that would not have happened were it not for my influence, then I think you can say that you've done something meaningful. Um, everything that you're doing, you should be thinking to yourself, will I regret having done this when I'm 90? Now, of course, you could think, you know, right. I wake up in the morning and I'm putting the kettle on to make a cup of coffee. Am I going to regret that? Well, that, that, that doesn't really, not a really applicable thought, but like the answer is no, you're not going to regret that because you're going to, you're going to enjoy that time of your life. When you were content, you had a, you had a nice life. You had a good routine. You got up in the morning, you had your coffee, you got on with your work. Like, no, you're not going to regret that. You're probably going to regret like the amount of time that you spent playing call of duty Warzone. So maybe you should kind of tone that down a little bit. You know what I mean? Like do those things which your future self will be proud of do those things, which your future self will be able to kind of sit back in the chair and think, yeah, yeah, that was good. I'm glad I did that, right? And that's what I'm trying to do. For me, a meaningful life consists in doing the most I can to alleviate the most suffering I can. And it's so clear to me that the best thing that I can do, given like my audience, my position, my knowledge, and my interests, uh, to alleviate the most suffering is to end animal exploitation, right? Like it, I, I want to see the end of this industry, the end of this torment, before the end of me right? That's a hard task. I don't know if I'm going to achieve it. But as long as I continue to move in that direction, I'll feel like I'm doing something meaningful. And I think it's the most meaningful thing I can do um, because it will have the most positive impact in the world. It, it takes a lot of people a lot of time to work out what their skills are, how they can be best used to alleviate suffering, how they can be best used to make the world a better place. But once you found it, stick with it. Consistency would be key there. Um, Chris Williamson has recently kind of in impressing this point about how he's, he's tweeting about it a lot, saying that consistency is, is more important than talent. Consistency is more important than skill. Um, that's I think where you can you can kind of develop this this sense of having committed a meaningful life because you're not just kind of good at something. You're good at something and you stuck with it. You kept doing, it. you kept it up so that by the time you're gonna die, you think to yourself, I really did actually put some work in and I really did actually make a difference. Um, yeah, I think that's how I'd answer the question. But I'm afraid that's not something that you couldn't have heard from someone else. You know, I, I don't have a, an interesting, unique approach to that question. Um, but I know that the uniqueness for me is that the way that that will express itself is by continuing to campaign for factory farming to come to an end as immediately as possible.
0: Beautifully put, man. Look, we've mentioned your, your channel. We've mentioned your work a lot. We haven't actually said the name, but Cosmic Skeptic. So I've said it there. You might as well plug it. For anyone who's watching this now who isn't familiar with your work yet, where can they find more
1: from you? It's all just Cosmic Skeptic. Pretty much anything forward slash Cosmic Skeptic, except TikTok. Um, Mm. If you want to find me on that horrible, decrepit platform, (laughs) I am at Ask A Vegan. But everywhere else, it's just Cosmic Skeptic. It's
0: easily marketable. A marketer's dream. Love it, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Man, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought your answers were fantastic. Giving me a lot to think about. Giving everyone a lot to think about. Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Appreciate it, man. It's been a good time.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to the Freedom Packed Podcast again and spending an hour of your Monday with me. I hope you'll join us again on Friday, where we'll be bringing you another episode of the freedom pack podcast and i know that joe has a very very good episode waiting for you on friday it's one you definitely won't want to miss so i hope to join you guys and see you there on friday on the freedom pack podcast